Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Ryan Gerdusky. Ryan is the founder and chairman of the 1776 Project Pack, which focuses on local school board elections. He writes also the po- the popular National Populist newsletter, which you can find on Substack. Ryan is a New Yorker through and through. He is a born and raised New Yorker. And that's actually kind of what I wanted to talk about. We're, we're going to go a little off the beaten path here for our first opening minutes before bringing on Ryan. And we'll do so partially in honor of Ryan because he's such a New Yorker. I was actually up in New York myself this past weekend. I was attending the annual gala for the New York Young Republicans Club, where I serve on the advisory board. And we were in New York just for a couple of nights. It was a relatively quick trip. I was born and raised in in the New York area in a lovely smaller suburb about 25 miles or so north of New York City. Haven't lived there in the area since I graduated high school, so it's been at least 15 and a half roughly years or so, I suppose. Now, I got to be honest with you. I I think New York City just absolutely sucks. I, I, I really think it positively sucks. And I hate to say that so bluntly or crassly, but I don't really know how else to say it in this particular case. I see two distinct advantages to living in New York. One is if you have a particular idiosyncratic proclivity for various cultural interests. So so, so put another way to kind of break that down. There are some things that I will concede you can actually only find in New York. There is, there is a panoply of museums that you will not necessarily be able to find elsewhere. There is Broadway, of course, if you are like a real kind of playbill collecting sort of matinee attending you know, uh, someone who just loves, loves, loves live theater. That is one thing that New York definitely has going for. The other thing, and this is rapidly fading in the era of COVID and work from home. The other thing is that, of course, historically speaking, there is just a total agglomeration of institutional heft and power across various industries, whether it is law, finance, banking, blah, 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 entertainment, you know, all that. But unless you have a compelling reason for one of those two blocks, one of one of those two slices, un- unless that is your reason for living there, I got to be honest, guys, what the hell are you doing? I mean, just walking around the city with my girlfriend, it just stresses me out. There is open sewer ventilation coming up from the sewers. I mean, if you haven't been to New York City recently, although this is this is not even that that recent of a thing. I mean, this has been a thing for as far back as I can remember. In Manhattan, they literally ventilate the sewers through the manholes. You smell sewage walking around the streets of Manhattan. And in case the scent of raw sewage was not enough for you, they have trash piling up on the sidewalk. There is no other big city that I am aware of that has this particular affliction. The city of Chicago, where I lived for three years, went to law school there, 
After the Great Chicago Fire in the late 1800s, they actually very carefully redesigned Chicago to put just enough room in between the buildings and kind of the urban corridor called the loop there where they could put the trash in there. Chicago does not have this problem. And that's probably the closest equivalent to New York, or at least the closest next thing to kind of a big urban center. So this is a uniquely New York phenomenon as well. More generally speaking, everything is just such a production in New York City. I mean, what if you're living in there and you want to go to the grocery store? I mean, what are you going to do? You can take a taxi there and then put your bags in the taxi. Alternatively, if you want to just go to like the local bodega, which is going to have a smaller selection anyway than like a bigger supermarket. But let's say you just want to go to the local bodega. What are you going to do? You're going to carry your four or five bags in the cold weather over the course of four or five months. It's not like you're going to park. You're not going to drive there. So I just don't get it. I really, just, I really just do not understand the appeal. I say this as someone who was who was born and raised in the area. I say this as someone, most of my family actually still lives in the area. Not all of them, but certainly most of them. I just don't get it, guys. Um, that's not to say that I did not have a great time at the gala on Saturday night. I certainly did. And, you know, look, for some people, some people are just tried and true New Yorkers. They just love it. They love the frenetic pace of life. They love XYZ things that I personally do not appreciate. Whatever bless your heart, knock yourselves out. It's not for me. But one person that it definitely is for is our guest, Ryan Gerdusky, who once again is a born and raised New Yorker. So we're going to bring on Ryan just after the end of, of this break. So I hope you'll stay right with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. So as previously mentioned, our guest this week is Ryan Gradusky. Ryan is the founder and chairman of the 1776 Project Pack, which focuses on local school board races, and also the writer of a Substack that I've been a subscriber and reader to for years now. I would strongly encourage you to check out it as the National Populist Newsletter, NatPop, natpop.substack.com. So Ryan, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me, Josh. So Ryan, let's Let's start with the latter, actually, the, the NADPOP name. We'll get into some school board stuff a little later on there. I feel like you were ahead of the curve. I, I, I feel like you were a bit of a soothsayer, if I can use that word there. You kind of saw a lot of this so-called new right, more nationalist, populist, less kind of free market, absolutist stuff. You saw, I think you saw a lot of this coming. Um, you and yeah. Coulter, there were some others who really saw this a long time in the making. How did that happen? Like, how did you see it, this <laughs> evolving? And at what point did you kind of realize that some of the more libertarian induced elements of the GOP and conservatism in general seem to be on the decline? You know, I'm not, I don't live in DC. I've never lived in DC. Uh, I don't have a college degree. I don't, um, go to a lot of DC or parties with people who are part of think tanks. And I think that a lot of my politics is instinctual. Um, 
And I live in a very conservative part of New York with a lot of people who could live in uh, Ohio or Pennsylvania or West Virginia or Washington State or not Washington, but Wisconsin, rather. Um, and were really the backbone of where the party was and what they were talking about. And I think that um, the the idea of immigration, having seen what mass immigration, how it changes a place firsthand and the um, the destruction of, of local social trust and the idea of um, destroying um, civic organizations and entire neighborhoods and practices and, 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 and local cultures over mass immigration really, really made them angry. So, I mean, I was writing about immigration going back to 20, I guess, 08. Um, and my first op-ed ever, ever was in 2011 was when I was writing about, um, how Donald Trump should run for president and Paul Ryan was a disaster. Um, and I kept my, that, that opinion very, 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 you know, true to myself. And I realized who the electorate was. So it wasn't shocking to me. Um, and I think that a lot of the old institutional right and kind of the, the, um, the building blocks of the institutional right are based a lot in the World War II generation that has died out over time. And the more Gen Xer, fairly boomer, younger boomer um, generation doesn't have a lot of those values and um, has different concentrations on concerns. So I kind of saw it coming from that perspective. Fair enough. And how did the rise of Trump and his candidacy kind of interact with this. So did, did it kind of give you a boost or did it kind of vindicate a lot of what you thought? How, what was kind of the interplay? Well, between I've been saying the same thing. I've said the same things. I've been writing about it for six years before Trump even announced. That's what I thought. At the time, yeah, I was. Yeah. And I at the time I was working for the Washington Examiner and our sister publication was was um, uh, Bill Crystal's publication, uh, old publication, The Weekly Standard. And I was it was Media DC as the conglomerate, and I was really a man on an island by myself. And I, the day he came down the escalator and gave the famous Mexicans or rapist speeches, um, even though he didn't say that, but nonetheless, that speech. I said he is the nominee. This is what people are looking for. Because the overall speech, although they remember kind of the more hyperbolic comments, the overall speech was how people feel like they are being screwed out of their country, the country that they have, the country they were born to, the promise that they were given from their ancestors is gone. And that resonated in a real, real way that the people living in Northern Virginia or Southern Maryland or the DC metropolitan area really couldn't understand. They had no idea. And they had a real, um, not only dislike towards Trump, but a dislike towards his voters. And I thought when I was there, I mean, if Trump would have lost, I would have been fired, but of course he ends up winning. And I thought that they would have sat there and said, oh my God, here, you, you know, give, give this guy his own podcast, give him something, put him out on television. He's been right this whole time. And it was the exact opposite. I mean, my life was like hellish afterwards. They gave me nothing and they elevated people who were wrong. I mean, it was the damnedest thing. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to be our institutional media anymore right. because I can't. I mean, what's the point of being right? If you're right, you're not you're not getting anything. If you say the correct things versus the, the right things, um, you are rewarded. And I just wasn't going to be part of it. No, so, fair no, enough. I didn't get anything. I didn't get anything from Trump being nominee. I also didn't have a big social media following at all. Um, 
So it wasn't like I was, I mean, some people have grifted and, and I don't want to say grifted. Some people have built their career off of being a Donald Trump cheerleader. I was not one of them. No, sure. But, but, but I just meant substantively as far as kind of the general direction of the party. Surely there was at least some vindication there. But let's let's fast. Yeah, I gave myself a pat on the back, but that, that <laughs> and $3 would get me on the subway. So <laughs> a true New Yorker. So, yeah. <laughs> so so let's fast forward then a little bit. So we, you mentioned the infamous kind of gilded escalator later dissent and um you know the mexicans not sending their best speech and all of that the trump presidency comes so given that you were kind of already on the immigration hawk uh, less kind of free market absolutist kind of slightly more kind of populist or paleo bent what did you see in in, in his presidency that you liked and and what did you dislike let's let's start there well, well you have to you have to remember the and you have to I, I think people forget this the republican party is always and has since the 20th century always the backbone of the republican party has always been democrats so we don't have an eisenhower unless we have the new deal democrats joining the republican party we don't have nixon unless we have those new deal democrats formally joining it overall, ethnic whites, especially in the, in the Northeast. Um, you don't have Reagan unless you have the Johnson Democrats coming on board. And you don't have George W. Bush unless you have the neocons of the 70s coming on board. Um, the next iteration of that transformation of the Republican Party is labor, right, um, working class minorities. Those are the two groups that come on board as well. Um, what Trump could have done and should have done that that I think that he had campaigned more on that I liked was his immigration hardline appeal and his um, his movement towards I don't want to say a social so that's not the correct word more towards a government oriented response towards healthcare on the right. I think the reason you see national populist parties win in Europe very very well. And when in other parts of the world very well, but not when in America is the hang up, especially on healthcare. I think maybe abortion does certain things, but I think because we cannot give a response on healthcare, we actually don't have any position, not a free market position, not a socialist position. We have no position on healthcare, but that is a giant thing. So when Trump sat there and said, we're going to take care of everybody, even though he did say Obamacare was a disaster, which it was, that was a very, very big deal. Um, when he sat there and pushed for the idea of um, of giving paid um, uh, maternity leave, huge idea. If you're going to be a more pro-family party, which is what the Republicans have really campaigned on for 50 years, then the economic libertarian model of, of vulture capitalism is not the natural response to that. It doesn't mean we would be fully like Europe, but it doesn't mean we can be vulture capitalists as well. Um, and you have to realize that neo and the idea that neoliberalism has been an utter failure over the last 40 years. So what things that he did that I liked, I liked a bit of what he did on immigration. I think that his remain in Mexico policy was brilliant. I think that he was his zero tolerance policy, although he walked it back, was very, very smart. Um, how the safe third country uh, uh, agreements, extremely important. Um, uh, when it comes to when it comes to his other things, the reorienting of NAFTA, um, trying to move away from China, although it wasn't super successful, was a very, very big deal. 
Um, I don't really think, I mean, what he did in the Middle East was important. Is it my top concern? Not really, but I know it is important. Um, and trying to get our allies sit there and pay their wage, their fair share of, of the, um, of, of, of military agreements, all very important things. I think ultimately when you look at the presidency of Donald Trump, the longest lasting things that will be important is, I guess, his judgeships, um, and his overall, change in the Overton window of what acceptable Republican politics are. So that was, I think those were the biggest things. Yeah, it's very health, very helpful overview. The one thing that I think you did not mention was the so-called First Step Act, um, which was a, a, you know, a, 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 a massive, massive jailbreak law that passed the Senate by a shockingly high margin. I think it was 88 to 12 in the final Senate tally in December 2018. I think it was that lame duck session you were a vociferous opponent of it if i recall well i remember i remember going to the trump to to trump the trump uh the trump hotel in dc and i'm there with a bunch of people and this very i don't remember her name but this very uh elegant looking woman comes up and she's isn't it just so great we passed the first step back and i was like no, it's not great. That's a terrible idea. And she's like, oh, uh, what's your email? I'll send you the Coke Institute's like talking points. <laughs> you have to hear them. I'm like, get the hell out of here. Like I give two, you know, shits for that. That was, um, that was, that was such a, menta- a DC mentality. And then of course, like right afterwards, although it's not related, but right afterwards we have the, I don't know, highest spike in homicides in a quarter. Go of figure. Century. Go figure. Yeah, I'm like, well, this is a really great talking point. The tough, the 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 party that literally got new, uh, mayors elected in Los Angeles and New York being tough on crime is now the jailbreak party. No, totally. I and there were there were very few people from the outside from the commentariat space who opposed that law. You were definitely one of them to your great credit. Daniel Horowitz was certainly one of them. I, I was oh, that was that was actually the year that I was clerking for a federal judge, so I was publicly muted, but I was privately just excoriating it behind the scenes. Daniel Horowitz would call me and you know you say hello to daniel and he enters a conversation like you've already been talking for 30 minutes and you, you know <laughs> once he gets you on that phone an hour and a half you've lost of your life there's no getting it back and uh, he'll probably say four words the whole time <laughs> the li- i love daniel i love him but oh my god he was so angry about that bill no the listeners of this show will recall we had daniel on earlier this year and um if, if there's one thing that daniel knows how to do it is certainly to talk loquaciously so <laughs> um but no but you no, got but great, but, great. but you got you guys were 100% on the on the right side of that particular debate. I was actually really happy to hear you mention the healthcare thing. So I'll tell a little quick personal anecdote because I actually had some direct personal experience on this issue. So I do a lot of the campus speaking stuff through a handful of different organizations. So I was up in the Northeast um, a, c- a couple weeks ago. I spoke at Brown University and then Tufts the next day. At Brown, they were trying to organize a debate for me. And initially they were trying to get me to do a Russia-Ukraine debate, which is a good topic for me. I could talk about that at great length. And ultimately the only topic that they could find any anyone from the political science department to debate me on was healthcare, which happens to be my single least favorite topic, literally in all of politics and policy to discuss, because I frankly have no idea what the right answer is. So it kind of underscores exactly what you were saying there. And then I think it was literally the Sunday after that debate, I was reading your substack that I mentioned earlier, and you have like a little bolded aside in this substack, kind of just underscoring the fact that the American right has no idea what to do on healthcare. And it frankly, 
really just drove the point home for me. There really is no obvious answer there. I'm the furthest thing from a healthcare policy want. But anyway, thank you, thank you for flagging that because I think that was actually quite helpful. But it's but it's the truth, and and it is it is independence number one or number two issue. It's certainly the left's number one issue. And our answer is to fold up and talk about, you know, markets or something. It's everything we talk about is non-tangible. And I think that the bigger anxiety from a lot of Republicans, working class, middle class Republicans, is they feel like um, they are the only ones paying taxes and never getting anything. And I think that that anger over health care, as they say, look at everyone gets this free health care. You know, meanwhile, if I come down with cancer. I am SOL. And um I just think that the response uh, will we'll make, you know, we will make healthcare as cheap as a McDonald's Happy Meal is a pipe dream. And I just don't see how you can deconstruct the government from healthcare. It's kind of like the libertarians are like, we'll just make, you know, we'll take the government completely out of marriage. I'm like, well, good luck doing contract law then and doing adoption law and everything. Like, uh, that is a, that is a wonderful, I think, idea, but at this stage in the game the question is how do you help your voters who are if you look at like if you look at like a map of texas right the the idea of what a republican state is is texas you look at you look at where life expectancy is our voters republican voters living on the east side of texas and the west side of texas die like 15 years before the people in austin and dallas now that's not all because of you know, that's partly as a lifestyle. They work harder jobs. They're, you know, they eat worse food, whatever the case is. And there's a higher tobacco intake. But they also have almost no access to a doctor. Right. Certainly not specialists anywhere near them. And that is highly problematic. And I don't know the answer for that question. I, I don't believe it's to just import, you know, doctors from around the entire world here. But that is a serious question. And I think that we oftentimes in American politics take the Band-Aid over the like open heart surgery. We'd rather put a Band-Aid over an issue than an open heart surgery. COVID, if anything was revealed in COVID, is that we are a very unhealthy country right. that has a mass obesity epidemic. And rather than having a really hard conversation on let's get people skinnier through whatever means necessary, we are too fat in this country. The conversation was, well, you know, either on the left, it was about masks and ventilators. And on the right, it was just open everything up. And you know, it's not that bad. Well, it's not that bad for most people, if but unless you are highly obese, which there are a lot of obese people, especially in red counties and red states. And that that shouldn't be the way it is. You know, we, we have to do better than what we've been doing. And rather than engaging in a very tough conversation, we chose the bandaid. And that's what I find extraordinarily irritating about our side, I guess, when it comes to politics. No, so this was actually, and we'll take it to a quick commercial break right after this, but this was actually one of my bottom line conclusions from that debate that I did at Brown a couple weeks ago with Professor Potashnik, I think his name was, was I actually talked for a solid five, 10 minutes about how obese America is and how that is kind of the the original sin, really, of all that subsequently flows when it comes to American health care policy and health insurance. 
And I, you know, I think back, and this is kind of, almost kind of a microcosm of kind of the broader GOP constellation shift from kind of a get off my lawn style reflexive Tea Partyism to kind of the modern, more nationalist, populist stuff. But I think back to that time where Sarah Palin, I think, went to CPAC, if I'm not mistaken, and she drank from that, you know, was a 32 ounce big gulp, um, you know, which yeah. which Mike Bloomberg had infamously banned in in New York City, and it was kind of like a statement of individualist defiance, but. No, I, I mean, we really should not be celebrating unhealthiness. I mean, if anything, I think that, you know, this kind of newer right, more kind of moralistic, more thumbs on the scale impulse would say to do the exact opposite, would be to kind of use the levers of, of the tax code of sub- subsidies and taxation and so forth to, you know, tax things that are bad and reward things that are good. But anyway. Well, I, I was trying to add one last thing. That, I mean, the most shocking thing of all is that America's thinnest state today is it was just Colorado is fatter than America's fattest state, which was, uh, which I think still is, but it was Mississippi in 1990. We are so fat that our thin, our thin people all would be fat from 30 years ago. It's terrible. No, it's terrible. I mean, I, I mean that's definitionally unsustainable. I, I mean, no matter what healthcare system you have, whether it's all out absolutist free market, whether it's full socialized you know, European social democracy. I mean, at that point, honestly, to kind of, crassly paraphrase Hillary Clinton, like at that point, what difference does it make? I mean, if you have a, a population that is going off the deep end from a personal health perspective, your public health policies, frankly, are not going to end up mattering a whole ton. But let's take it to a quick commercial break here. We have Ryan Gerdusky on. We're going to continue the conversation on the other side, focus a little bit on 2022 midterms as well. Stay with us. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, so Trump is out of office as of January 2021, and the next bout of elections were the midterms, which we just had last month, discussed at great length on this show and written about at great length on your Substack letter. How do you assess the state of national conservatism, national populism, the new right, all of these various closely related movements? How do you assess the state of this looking at what just happened in the midterms last month? Well, I mean, we got our, we didn't do too well. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, I think the biggest, that's the biggest problem is we just did not do well at all. And um, I think that part of that is because um, I think part of it was we had some bad candidates. I mean, we did, we did not have very good candidates, although I like them personally. Like I like John Gibbs a lot. I don't think it was John Gibbs's fault though, but I, I, I think the, the abortion thing really hurt the, all of Michigan. But um I, uh, we had bad candidates and we had, um, who ran very bad campaigns that were too online. Um, and I don't, I think that the conversations over both abortion and not, it was like the dog who finally caught the car. We didn't know what to do once we had actually caught the car. And I think that 
talking about the 2020 election being stolen were electoral disaster areas. And um, and there was also and I and I think that that's probably the two biggest factors related to why we lost in some very, very, very important states. I mean, I don't think there's a single issue, but we had I mean, we had a mixture of horrendous candidates and, and people running on issues that were that were not that were not palpable to the to the voters what well, is anything structural leap out so you know in my kind of post-mortem show here i was talking about fundraising discrepancies i i talked yeah, a little that's a big one I, I, what do we do what, I mean, what do we do about that well i mean act blue was created back in 2000 i think three by howard dean to get democrats elected and it connects 21 million donors with different democrat candidates all the time Democrats structurally are different than Republicans. Republicans have politics, they have church, and they have QVC. Democrats just have Act Blue. So that's, and they have a higher income threshold. So that's going to be a problem for a very, very long time. Um, and I, I don't think that when red is nearly close to what Act Blue is, I know, in fact, that it's not. Um, and I, and Anadot certainly isn't. And I think that, which is the two Republican fundraising organizations. And I think that, um, that was that was bad and I, it, it just allowed mass saturation into these states when voters really i think also took a long time for republicans to get to the message that they shouldn't on from day one i was screaming from the rooftops start talking about crime stop talking about inflation like we banked so heavily on inflation when it's one not a sexy issue it's very hard for people to understand Two, gas prices were declining, so they weren't seeing at the pump. And three, the answer to inflation is austerity, which is even more unpopular. So rather than talk about that, rather than talk about crime, they were talking about that for months. They didn't get to the crime topic really until the fall when a lot of independents really had made up their minds. I was seeing these polls saying independents were losing independents by 10 points. I was like, that can't possibly be true. It must be a bad sample. Right. But it was true. And I think that's why I, like many other people, overhyped what we were actually going to do. And I think top of the ticket candidates were really, really, really bad. Doug Mastriano single-handedly took down the three swing states, Dr. Oz, who I think would have won had we had picked a better governor candidate, um, three swing seats in the House, the state legislature, and um, and uh, what's your call? And, uh, and, and Dr. Oz's Senate campaign. I mean, Doug Mastriano lost rural PA by like 15 points or 16 points compared to Trump had Philadelphia he lost but he lost by such a bad number had Philadelphia and Pittsburgh both not voted he would have still won wow that's how bad his campaign would have still was. lost you mean would have still lost yeah sorry he would have still lost he would have still lost had Pittsburgh and Philadelphia both wow. not voted. so Dr. Oz got 300,000 Josh Shapiro voters but had he gotten 200,000 more he still would have lost when you're talking right. about such a huge deficit from the governor candidate um, I don't think there's a way to sit there and salvage those kinds of campaigns. Um, I think that I think that in certain cases we should have done more ballot harvesting, like in Nevada, for example, they right. have done ballot harvesting. Um, and I think that Carrie Lake was a bad candidate. I mean, she's a great person on television. She's really smooth talker, but um, talling, bashing John McCain throughout the campaign. It wasn't just a one-time thing she did throughout the entire campaign in a state that he was very popular. And by the way, is dead, which you just don't attack a dead person, especially someone thought so well of who can't respond to it. And, um, 
and talking about 2020 endlessly. Independents really, really, really hate conversations on 2020, and it hurt the whole party. And I think that it really hurt. Um, I think that it really hurt important places. The 2020 point is just so important, and we we underscored this a little bit on our post mortem election special a few weeks ago, but. Look, there is a lot of bad stuff happening in this country right now. There was a lot of bad stuff happening on the world stage. There's a lot of good stuff happening, too. I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, a total outright doomer or anything. But the point is, you know, with inflation as it is, the border historically porous and all the various critical race theory, transgender nonsense. I mean, you know, there's a lot of crap out there. There's just a lot of crap. And the median person doesn't want to hear your petty relitigating of something two years ago. Now, if you want to talk about election integrity as an issue prospectively and talk about policies, I think that's one thing. It's probably still not the most important issue out there, but it's definitely an important issue. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it either. Yeah, no, Josh, but the, but the important part is remember, the Trump of 2016 who won, his message was, you are being screwed by the people in charge. Right. The Trump 2022 is, I am being screwed. I'm sorry, but people don't feel bad for a rich guy with a model wife who's got five, you know, beautiful kids and uh, like 20 grandkids or whatever it is, like who lives in a castle in Florida. Like that is not a sympathetic figure in the eyes of how are you being screwed? Right. It's a very big turnoff and they may love him, but that's that doesn't mean they're going to show up. And also we've traded the white work, the white college educated middle class in the suburbs for the white working class, especially and some minority working class. But working class people don't vote as often. So you need to appeal to the middle class. You need to appeal to the suburbs. You can't let those people go because if you do, you will not win because they voted a higher turnout. That's just the truth of the matter. Right. So let's talk about the big guy in Mar-a-Lago then for a second while, while we're on the topic there. So the first part of that question is how much did he personally damage Republicans' chances last month? Actually, if I can make a shameless plug in Newsweek, just this week we have an op-ed from Mark Davis, the Dallas-Fort Worth-based radio host who actually has a whole, a whole op-ed on this. Go ahead and check that out at newsweek.com slash opinion. So, Ron, would first love your answer on that. And the second kind of natural corollary to that question would be, to what extent do you think that Trump's support, even within kind of his once formerly hardcore base, is starting to slip a little bit? And I'll slip into the second part of that question, just a very quick anecdote. So this past weekend on uh, Saturday night, I was at the New York Young Republicans Club Gala uh, on the Upper East Side in, in Manhattan. I'm, I'm on the advisory board for President Gavin Wax's group there. And this is a very, very pro-Trump group. Uh, Gavin Wax is, is, is a personal friend of mine. I love Gavin, but they're a little a little Trumpier, I guess, for lack of a better term, than I personally am at this exact moment. And I have to say that when the various speakers throughout the evening kind of did a, you know, an enthusiastic kind of rah-rah, gung-ho Trump thing, the applause was slightly less enthusiastic, slightly more tepid than I would have thought. But um, Ryan, I would love your answer to those uh, two related questions there. I think Trump hurt us a lot. I think picking Herschel Walker, who wasn't even thinking about running, was a disaster. Um, I think endorsing Doug Mastriano in part because his employee was also see, I wrote this in the newsletter and this is what people don't know. There is everyone close to Trump. They don't only work for Trump. They work for other campaigns. And there is an entire business right now about Trump, about selling Trump's endorsement in primaries. If you hire X, Y or Z consultant, they can guarantee the Trump endorsement, even though nine times out of 10, they cannot 
guarantee the Trump endorsement and they completely fail on that promise, they still make fifteen to $20,000 a month in the process of doing it. And I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of them and there's a lot of candidates that hired these people. Um, and for their one singular purpose of I'm going to get the Trump endorsement. So um, I think that you know, if you are the leader of a party, which for the de facto sake, he is the leader of the party, that is an immense responsibility to leave the party in a better place than it was. Obama was the leader of the party. And even though Democrats loved him as president, he did a miserable job as leader of the party. The DNC was broke. They had not done massive amounts of uh, support for getting candidates elected. They had lost over a thousand elected seats during his time in office. He was a terrible party leader. If Trump wants to be the leader of the party, part of that is endorsing really good candidates. When you have a guy running on imprisoning women who get abortions and attending rallies that 9-11 was an inside job, it's best bet that you endorse against him, regardless of who it is. It's kind of like a David Duke moment of we have to stop this person from being the face of the party. That was Doug Mastriano. And instead, he voted. For, he endorsed Doug Mastriano. Why? Because he thought he was going to win anyway. So let's get his win percentage, which was 83 percent of non-incumbent wins uh, up on there. Um, making candidates take this asinine suicidal take of we're going to change the election and we're going to change election results. He lost every secretary of state race, I think, except for Wyoming and like Mississippi. Every single secretary, or sorry, Arkansas. Arkansas, Mississippi, the two states that he won secretary of state races. But every important state. I don't think, I don't, I think he got only one candidate that was in a state that he lost that won. And I think that was just the lieutenant governor of Georgia. That was, I think that was it. But everywhere else, every other swing state that he lost in 2020, but had won in 2016, every one of his candidates lost. And he made them take, remember that call with Blake Masters from that Fox oh, yeah, right. where he's like, Blake, you got to have a 2020. Just mention it. Carrie Lake is going to win because all she talks about is 2020. Well, Carrie Lake didn't win either. And when talking about, you know, what happened to Trump, make, putting him on the ballot when he was not there it negated Biden being on the ballot because all it was was a 2020 election redo. And that was it. And, and guess what? In all the states that we lost, we lost all over again because we had to take this insane position on Donald Trump and how close you are to Donald Trump and how much you love him. And that doesn't mean that Laxalt shouldn't have been doing ballot harvesting. That doesn't mean that uh, we should have been doing uh, that McConnell shouldn't have been putting money in Arizona or whatever that gets out of New Hampshire or an, an Alabama primary. It doesn't mean any of those things. But that alone was very, very damaging to the party. So looking ahead then, because I, I, I basically agree with you. I agree with effectively everything that, that you just said. And that's, that's not the takeaway from any of the various good things that President Trump accomplished in office at this point. It's simply to note that he seems largely incapable, from my perspective, of moving on from what has happened to him in the last election cycle. And, you know, Ryan, I think you and I strongly agree that at this point, come the general optics of his nascent campaign give off a strong sense of settling scores and fighting yesterday's fights. It is really not kind of this, I'm going to fight for you moving forward sort of mentality that was there in 2015, 2016. So I think you and I agree with that. So but Josh, here's, here's my bigger question to people who are still on the board with Donald Trump. What does he really want to be president or does he want to just good question. 
good question. It's a good question. Do you remember, do you remember that Sean Hannity um, interview that he did right before the election twenty twenty? And they said, "What is your second term goals?" And he didn't have right. Any. That's right. Yeah. What is this? What is what is this? You know, if everything was hunky dory right before you know the, the election, even though it was, and there was a lot of things to still do, he couldn't name any of them though. That is that is that is that is the sign of a man who does not want to be president as much as he wants to be elected president, and that is very very problematic going into the future. So, what is the new Trump? I mean, is he gonna? He never built the wall. Is that finally gonna get done, or is it to sit there and say, you know, f you to Mitch McConnell? I'm gonna make your last you know, two, four years, whatever it is in the Senate, uh, living hell. Okay, I mean that's a goal, but it's not something that's gonna help your voters that much. I mean, what is what is the actual goal? What are you going to deliver in a way that you could not while you had the House and the Senate, although not a supermajority nonetheless, but still the House and the Senate? What is your goal? You know, are you going to play hardball with big tech in a way that you didn't do that you know, during your first year in office? I mean, could you imagine, Josh, had Donald Trump who wanted to campaign on and, 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 and endorse the RAISE Act, which was which was fundamentally alter our immigration policy in a much better way. But we couldn't get it past this, the Democrat controlled Senate. And it wasn't even getting support from university from Republicans. But imagine if Donald Trump sat there and would have told big tech people, you know what, as president, he has the full discretion. And it's been proven by the Supreme Court over and over and over again, the full discretion to deny entry into the United States by any alien or class of aliens that he sees not in the not in the best interest of the United States. So he could say tomorrow, guess what, guys? No more redheads. I just don't see redheads as being beneficial to the United <laughs> States. And that's the law. That is what I mean, he has that much power with immigration. Could you imagine if he would have sat there and said, you know what? We're not taking in any H-1B visas. And and if you have a problem with that, Google, Apple, whatever the case is, maybe you want to call your friends over in the Democratic Party and you want to sit there and get them to sign on to my bill. So we pass it. And play real hardball because they would have had a stroke if they would have gotten no H-1B visa workers for four years. They would have attacked him. They would have said this. They would have said that. But you know what? At the end of the day, he would have been a lot closer towards getting what he promised towards his voters than he did. So is that going to happen? Is he even thinking about that? Because all I hear about is that we won this perfect election that was stolen from us. And China is terrible reflected things about covid which are you know in the rearview mirror and how sleepy joe is at the wheel sleeping i don't hear a uh, vision of the future that is tangible towards working class people who are literally barely making it by month by month there's electric bills in the south or insurance policies if they live near the gulf or um their gas bills their food bills they are really struggling their wages aren't going up like they did under trump so and labor for labor force participation is bottom of the barrel after covid where are we what are we talking about what's the aspirational view for these people who see you donald trump as their hero and the only man who can save them whether that is a legit or that's an accurate portrayal of them or their feelings or what or, or or donald trump you know that's up for litigation for argument but that is the way that he sees them so what's your message to them and it can't be it's about me that is played out and it was just shown last election that is played out you know i was thinking of asking you one more question ryan but i think that's a very powerful note to end on so i think we can go <laughs> i think I, th I think we can go ahead and actually just wrap this right there but i i just want to underscore that i feel i just fully agree with you there i mean any political candidate for any office 
has to be running on a platform of what you are going to do for the voters who represent them. How are you going to help their lives in a tangible perspective? How are you ultimately going to help better the national interest and the common good of the whole and so forth there? But it can't be this petty personal BS. Um, I, I think any reasonable observer of politics, right, left, center, whatever, would agree with that. But until next time, Ryan Gerdusky, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you. It's very interesting, frankly, for me, and hopefully interesting as well for the listeners of this program to hear the extent to which Ryan is really not pulling his punches when it comes to former President Trump. You got to remember, going back to the beginning of our conversation here, Ryan launched his National Populist Substack, which, again, I commend you to read. It's one of my favorite Substacks. I'm a very loyal reader of that. He launched that a number of years ago, and he has been kind of singing this tune of a more hawkish immigration policy, a more realist trade policy, a more realist foreign policy. I mean, he was basically there, along with Ann Coulter, some other guests we've had, and some other guests that we hope to have in this coming year, 2023. But Ryan was basically there way before Trump himself probably was there for just being candid about this. So, you know, for, for to hear him kind of lighting into Trump for, I mean, I'm really glad he mentioned that phone call um, that Trump apparently had with Blake Masters where he was like, CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Blake, you've got to do what Carrie's doing, what Carrie Lake is doing. Just talk about the election. It'll be a guaranteed winner. Ryan also mentioned this interview between Sean Hannity and Donald Trump. I can't remember exactly when that interview was, but Hannity was a total softball fluff of a question. He basically was saying, so what do you hope to accomplish in a prospective second term? He couldn't answer the question. He couldn't answer it. And if you listened to Trump's speech at Mar-a-Lago announcing his 2024 presidential campaign a few weeks ago— I think you heard that too. There was some talk about the issues that matter, like a little big tech, a little little critical race theory, whatever. But the overwhelming argument, the overwhelming argument that I hear time and time again from some of Trump's biggest fans, from those in so-called Trump world and, and, and all of that, and not everyone says this, but it's basically one of two strands of thought. One strand of thought is that the 2020 election was just straight up rigged, you know, full stop, period, end of story. Therefore, Donald Trump is, is entitled to a second term. The second and, and somewhat related strand of thought is that, you know, he was basically the founder of this movement. Therefore, he is the only logical person to carry it forward. Well, I think both of these arguments are somewhat flawed, to be honest with you. So taking the first line of argument first, the argument that the 2020 election was stolen, therefore, ipso facto, simply because of that fact, it is the only righteous and just thing to do to get Trump back in the White House. 
I mean, one thing does not necessarily lead to the other. So I have time and time again referred to the 2020 election as stolen. I have used the word stolen. I've used that in a slightly metaphorical sense, referring not merely to whatever kind of 4 a.m. ballot stuffing in Michigan or Wisconsin or Philadelphia was happening, but using it in a slightly broader sense to refer to the idea that the ruling class and big tech, perhaps more so than any other institution, absolutely unequivocally put its thumb on the scale. Elon Musk's revelation of the Twitter files definitely corroborates that. And when you consider that the final margin of Trump's loss in 2020 was 43,000 votes spread across three to four states, I, I feel very comfortable actually doubling down on the slightly broader, more metaphorical use of the word stolen. But simply because of that, even assuming that is the case, that does not necessarily lead to a conclusion that Donald Trump should be brought back into the White House. And part of that is because he can't get over 2020. He just can't. Time and time again, in these uh, musings and in, in his Mar-a-Lago speech last month, all of, all of his media hits, all he talks about is kind of it's the cleanest election. He's not really focusing on the issues anymore. And, you know, getting to the second part of that uh, defense of Trump 2024 that I hear from some of his most enthusiastic acolytes and followers is this idea that because he started this whole kind of realignment of the Republican Party, then therefore he is the only logical person to carry that torch forward. Same thing. I mean, the conclusion simply does not follow from the premise. We can give him a ton of credit, a ton of credit for getting this whole thing started. That simply does not mean that he is the most logical person to carry it forward. An analogy that another previous guest of this program, Oren Cass of American Compass, has used in the past, Oren has analogized Trump to a hurricane. A hurricane kind of comes off the shore. You know, here in Florida, we're obviously familiar with hurricanes. A hurricane comes off the shore and it damages or destroys a lot of the rotting foundations of old, of old buildings, of old infrastructure. But a hurricane does not build. A hurricane does not build. It simply destroys. The time now is for substantively, productively building upon what has happened, not necessarily merely for fighting yesterday's fights. And I think that that is an open question at this point as to whether President Trump is the best person to do that going forward for the Republican Party. So once again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Josh Hammer, and we will see you next time.